0: Welcome to Attorneys Are Human Too, with your host Stephen Wallace and co-host Selena Music of the Wallace Law Group. Today's episode, we have Jamie Michelle Kane, the rainmaking queen. Let's get started. So, Jamie, could you tell us where you grew up and uh, what what led you to uh, becoming an attorney?
1: There. Sure. So, I grew up in a town called Setauket. It is located on Long Island. If you ever heard Stony Brook University, it's right in that general vicinity um, on the North Shore of Long Island. Why did I become an attorney? I, as a little kid, remember arguing with my mom. She used to say something and I'd be like, actually, not really. And, you know, she to, 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 the, to today, she will say to me, oh, is the sky blue? Is it a little shade of purple? And she's like, you used to test me and had to be the the last say on every last thing that you did. So it kind of just stuck with me that I should go into litigation and, and do that for a living and, and be a lawyer and all the glamour that I thought went with it until I got to undergrad. And I realized I could not talk in front of anybody. I would freeze and I couldn't speak and I would shake. And then I questioned what I was doing with my career. So I, I forced myself to get over that. And here we are as, as a litigator. That's awesome. My mom is a speech therapist. And so I used to have a voice that had like a very, very high octane. So I actually got training on how to speak and deliver presentations and, you know, speaking in the courtroom so that I would be better suited for the career that I had chosen since I was seven is what my mom tells me.
0: That, that's excellent. So in addition to your training and your realization at an early age, Uh, being an attorney, what type of extracurricular activities did you do during school? And and could you tell us a little bit more about some hobbies that you have now?
1: Sure. So growing up, I was avid into sports, whether it was watching sports with my father or playing sports. I I played competitive softball and soccer. And so I was always involved in something. I I was on travel teams traveling all over for softball. So that, that really growing up was what I remember watching golf on every Sunday with my dad for hours at a time thinking it was the worst thing in the world. Um, now, looking you know ahead, that is probably my most fun pastime of recent. I love the game of golf. I love being able to go and play with clients and it's a new resource for me. Some of my other hobbies, though, include planning. I, I love event planning and, and traveling. I think the whole part leading up to a vacation is oftentimes more fun than for me. So um, that, that's a definite hobby that I have. Hi. Hi, Jamie. Just to add to
2: Stephen's original question, I wanted to ask, why did you go into real estate law? Just because being a fellow New Yorker, when I think lawyers, I think criminal law for some reason.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I did not intend to do real estate. So I actually started at another larger law firm. When I got out of law school, and I was actually litigating things in the commercial realm. So, things like construction law and roofing issues and disputes revol- revolving around real estate. So, a lot of the times we would get things where family owners owned a piece of property in a vacation area and they would fight over who had the rights to it or disputes with a, a neighbor. So, I was doing a lot of that. When I had my second child and I was working hours that I didn't necessarily have the aptitude to continue with because I, at that point, had a 15-month-old and a newborn, I thought about moving firms. And what drew me here to Boylan was I, I really wanted to do something. I had gained a large practice with landlord tenant, um, working for exclusively one real estate investor in Rochester who had a very large practice. And I wanted to expand on that and to create something for investors. Um, So something that would dive down and be soup to nuts, everything where... If someone was investing in property in this area, I could fulfill that need, whether it be the acquisition of the property, the lease of the property, the property management role, making sure they were set with employee relations and understanding the obligations to the employee. And then obviously, if there was termination or business succession or a business dispute, kind of taking all of that into a concept and creating this investor niche. And and Boylan, when I came to them with that idea, they were very receptive to it, and so I got put in our real estate department, and, and then started growing on that.
0: Kind of, kind of a one stop shop for real estate investors, so to speak.
1: Re- yeah, really, something that was novel. I like to think outside the box, and it was there was a need for it because. Rochester, as you know, Steve, upstate New York in general, it's very attractive to investors, especially from out of the area because of the real estate market. You can get some really nice properties here and the cost isn't crazy. And the rents are pretty you know, healthy in terms of being able to have a model where you purchase, improve, take the equity out and buy again. And, and that's kind of what I've been doing for you know, the last five years.
0: Yeah, so Selena and I are both in the, I, I in the past and Selena currently, we're both real estate investors. So okay. if you could give us some advice on, you know, some some tips of the trade on how to be a successful real estate investor, because your practice revolves around representing real estate investors.
2: We're all ears.
0: <laughs> we're taking <laughs> notes.
1: The the number one lesson that I can take away for clients is choose wisely. So know the area that you're in. And and this is where I'm talking about the deep dive. A lot of the times, you know, lawyers are thought of as, you know, just the, the henchman at the end of it. What I try and tell my client is, no, we are counselors you need to talk to me through the whole process so that you understand the risks of what you're trying to do when you're buying a property. So a lot of the times it's looking, first of all, at the the area. So where are you looking in? What kind of neighborhood it is? What kind of rents are supportive in that neighborhood? You're not going to come in and you're not going to put in a ton of money expecting to raise the rents if the neighborhood doesn't call for it. So looking at that, but moreover, um, for our area purposes, looking at what courts would service that property so that if something goes wrong, you can know what to expect and how fast you can get your property back or, or if that's a problem. Our city court up here is really tough and very heavily in the favor of the tenant. So knowing that you're going to be walking into that court sometimes could be a deterrent for purchasing property if you're not going to intend to be a hands-on landlord because then you're going to have to buy, a, you know, buy into a management property, especially if you're an out-of-town investor. Also, looking at the assessed value of a property, I, I have gotten clients that that I see purchase contracts for the assessed value is way below their purchase price and knowing that eventually that's going to catch up on taxes and does this make sense to purchase this property when, you know, in Rochester, we're, we're on a four-year cycle for the, the assessment and knowing if you're in year three and you're purchasing this property way out of whack, all of a sudden you think you're getting a good deal and your taxes go crazy and you, know, you have to think about that. So structure of the deal would follow that. Is it appropriate to buy the actual property or maybe should you look to buy the membership interest of the company that owns that property, which then is just a transfer of the actual um, company itself and not the real estate, even though the, the real estate becomes an ancillary part of that purchase. so Would
0: that trigger a reassessment of the real estate taxes if you purchase the membership interest?
1: It doesn't in New York right now. That's one of the loopholes that's there and used, especially when you see, again, those assessed values being really low and a purchase price being, sometimes you'll see assessed value at $1.2 million and I've got a purchase price that's 4 it doesn't make sense to invest in that as just a real estate deal. So we will look to do a membership purchase transfer in that instance in a lot of cases where we create a new LLC for warranty and liability purposes, but they will actually only file that the, the notice in New York that gets filed up at the state level, it doesn't go to the county. So it doesn't trigger the assessment right away. It, it eventually catches up, but it, it doesn't right away. And so that that helps people be able to put money back into the property for a short-term purpose.
0: And, and that's certainly a reason oh, wow. to have an experienced New York real estate lawyer like yourself to assist on a transaction because that transaction structure that you just described is not some something you can pick up a book. And, and figure out, you yeah, definitely there, there's a lot of challenging uh, aspects of that transaction. Selena, did you have another question?
2: Yeah, I mean, that is so interesting. I never would have thought upstate New York, just because, again, I'm an inner city, grow, grew up in, in the Lower East Side, and honestly, I, I got my first property because of my parents at a very young age, but I knew absolutely nothing or what to do with it, I just, I basically lived there and paid rent to my parents and they took care of everything else.
1: Yeah. And it it is trying to figure out and, and groups like I'm trying to run in terms of networking opportunities to educate people as to there's other structures or there's other areas. You know, we see Rochester, Syracuse, Buffalo. Albany. there's so many people from New York City or from California. We see a lot of doctors in California who have never even been to Rochester, but are investing in property because the, the deal's better. So our real estate market's really healthy still, even in a post-COVID or during COVID world. And, and that's part of the education process with people like you saying, hey, you know, New York City's super expensive and there's a lot of There's a lot of ancillary things that go into, you know, owning something in the city itself because you have a whole nother layer of laws with the city having their own laws that, you know, we don't have that up here. It, It might be an attractive option. And right now it would be even better for you because you cannot find a rental property upstate to rent because of COVID, because everybody from Manhattan and the five boroughs are up here vacationing. Everyone ran.
0: Yeah, Hold the on. other the other thing that, that's really attractive for the upstate New, upstate New York market is that a lot of areas are college towns. Like I grew up in Syracuse, as you see by my orange shirt, and we're fellow orange, Jamie. And so, could you talk a little bit? Do you have investors that are looking and tailoring housing for for students?
1: Absolutely. So you are 100% correct. It's a very lucrative market. Um, A lot of the times there's that safety net too, because you have a parent as a guarantor. So clients will actually like that, you know, that if you buy around the, the actual schools that your property is almost always going to be rented. And I think there's a little bit about, you know, college students, do they really care about maintenance requests? I mean, unless something's completely not working, you're not going to have the scenario where you're you're constantly going to be maybe bothered by the tenant for for things to be repaired or fixed. Most of the time, college students just want to move in and they don't really care what it looks like. It's comfort away from the dorms and it's proximity to campus. So those are definitely attractive properties and what I see is once a client buys into a certain area oftentimes you'll see them try and take the block so they'll own the block of that school area so that they may own 10 in a row and it becomes very easy for them to manage and collect rents and oversee what's going on in the area.
0: yeah I, I can just tell you because I, I visited the Syracuse University campus about a year ago and growing up, there were a lot of individual homeowners that in upstate New York, there's a lot of single family and, and three family homes. And sometimes they basically, what they'll do is they'll chop up every floor of the home and, and set up a separate entrance. And then that's a, that's a way that they're able to derive revenue. And then also, they'll oftentimes, and if it's tailored for a student market, they'll charge per room. And so, what I've seen though, and, and if you could shed a little bit of light, is that model. There's actually a lot of institutional money that's been that's been put on the Syracuse University campus. There's some luxury housing on Marshall Street and some of the other vicinity. Like there are some areas that are kind of growing up that were off the beaten path of the university, and those the university housing areas expanded. So, can you do you have any investors that are like some institutional grade investors that are? I, I've seen some luxury housing on campus.
1: Yeah. I, myself, there's a couple of companies I work with. I advise on student housing in terms of fair housing, but for for myself, I don't have clients that own on the campus, but I could tell you, I lived on the corner of Comstock right across from the tennis courts as you were going up to like Day and Flint. And Mm -hmm. so- Even when I was there, I had three roommates. It was granite countertops, very high-end living, and the cost wasn't insane. And if you think about how much you pay for dorms, it's something that is attractive to students. And I don't think that investors have to put that much um, money into a property to make it something that's attractive to students. Again, I think that there's a market, obviously, for luxury and, and grad students might prefer that. But I have seen um, my friends, especially when I was there, live in places that were, you know, just basic and and they had parties there and they enjoyed it. And it wasn't something that it hurt to a student to have this very high end. So I think there's a good mix on the campus of both, depending on what you're looking for, depending on what your price point and, you know, some I remember friends of mine that wanted, you know, 10 plus guys to live in one house. And so those nice houses that are, you know, complete, like you described, three story houses, there were many people that were takers on that to get out of campus housing itself.
0: Yeah, we rented after college, between college and law school, I took a year off, and we rented on Euclid. And I think we paid $300 a room. And it was it was a pretty dumpy place, but very nice proximity to campus and everything like that. So it work. We, we did make it work. So, uh, you know, you brought up a lot of great points. And then I'm going to take this question and I'm going to let my friend Selena take two questions because I don't want to monopolize the conversation. So we met on LinkedIn and we, we even though we're all, both fellow alumni, we never met before. And one of the things that really struck me and is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show was you have some very innovative um, marketing techniques. And one of the things that you are currently doing in, in light of the COVID and, and the lack of a lot of marketing opportunities is your real estate roundtable. So, could you talk about the real estate roundtable? And then also, could you tell us some of the other things you're doing to rain make?
1: Sure. Absolutely. So the roundtable used to be an in-person roundtable. So I I've, I've run this for approximately almost five years since I moved over here to be an in-person monthly meeting where investors could come to network. It was a pre-approved agenda that I would come up with that would be circulated and it would range in topics on anything real estate. So you know we'd have a on 1031 exchanges, and then the next month we may be talking about emotional support animals. But it varied, and I would get about 30 people to come to my office, Um, we'd have a continental type breakfast, and we'd talk about it for about an hour, and then we would leave. In COVID, what I quickly realized was, obviously, I wasn't going to be traveling anymore, and I was doing those roundtables in four cities. So I would do them in Rochester, and then I was doing them in Albany. And then in Buffalo and in Syracuse. So we were kind of making the upstate realm once a month somewhere. Every city would hit it somewhere. A L-
0: lot of driving down the New York State throughway back lot and forth. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: And then in COVID, I was like, well, this isn't gonna work. How do I keep in touch with all these people? You know, had become clients. And at the same time, we were seeing multifamily be right away a problem. No one knew, you know, how to deal with people who tested positive or Know, how their employees could respond to having to go into a house who may um, or may not have COVID. And then the PPP loans and the EDIL loans, carving out through that process whether landlords were able to be eligible for those loans, it quickly became apparent. I started it as a Facebook Live every day where I was coming on and I was having like 15-minute updates on the state of and then I realized, no, to engage, we need to have people comment and talk to each other, and make it so that they feel like they could ask a question. I switched over to Zoom, and I was getting like 85 people on. And um, when those people were home, and walking them through daily. You know, I would sit in front of the TV, I would take notes of what the governor was saying, and I could order that day and how it pertained to housing or how it pertained to labor law. And so really just was digesting information, offering legal sound advice in terms of this is what the EO said today, this is how you have to comply, walking through rules of legislation that might impact the real estate world. And so really it was dissecting every day and, and being somewhat of a broadcast news program, but then being able to have people receptive asking questions and it it kind of flourished. I didn't intend for it to perhaps go this long. Um, But what I have heard is, you know, it's been a lifeline. It's been somewhat of um, the only resource out there so that somebody can actually ask a question and get an answer. And, And then collectively, the networking opportunity for everybody on the call being that I'm reaching all of New York State and and even sometimes people in other states, the ability of somebody in New York City to talk to somebody in Buffalo, those relationships that didn't exist before are now forged. And you know, someone who's maybe selling their property has somebody to see if they want to buy it. So it's really developed into something nice. And and consistently, I'm still getting about forty-five to sixty people on which. You know we're in July, and that that's crazy to me that that is still something people want to tune into live at two o'clock.
0: That's excellent.
1: Yeah, it's been it's been cool.
0: <laughs> and so I'll ask I'm ask a follow up question, and then Saline is going to hit you with two questions. So what has been what's been the response? to your to your partners at your law firm, just because this is a little outside of the cookie cutter formula, because, you know, I, I assume it's non billable time that you have. So how, what is your what are your partners finding, you know, are responsive to this particular marketing opportunity, which I think we coming from the large firm world, and now working at a boutique firm, I think it's innovative and amazing for you.
1: Yeah, so they've always been supportive here, which is, again, one of the reasons why um, moving made sense from a larger law firm that I was at before. The non-billable aspect of it, we actually have a three-hour billable, non-billable requirement for marketing and for, for um, client development every day. So that fits what I'm doing. But I will tell you that it's hard to argue. Um, we've almost gotten 50 clients in oh, since wow. COVID. So it's exposure. It's, you know, it's showing you you're able to be a resource in your craft. Landlord tenant law used to be something that, you know, most people would you know, be like, oh, that's a first year thing and, and you know, really not want to get into and, and akin to debt collection and foreclosure. And a lot of people would, you know, r- roll their nose at that or roll their eyes at that. It, it is so tough right now. It is such an area of um, minefields and trying to, to navigate the changes that are daily that, you know, it's it's. Ex- it's starting in that. And then, what I tell my partners is you showcase your skills in something niched, and then you prove to them you can do that. And you help them when they need help, and then they come back for something else. And so that's kind of the model is, you know, being responsive, being able to, to be a resource that they, you know, they hear your voice, they hear your passion, they understand, you know what you're talking about, and that you're not just guessing. And, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of people in this area who were giving bad advice in the beginning, and telling clients they can do certain things, and they and they couldn't. And there were all kinds of attorney general recourse yeah, and so you know, it's it's. I tell my client clients all the time. I'm a very conservative attorney. I'm not going to go tell you to uh, do anything that could potentially make you the guinea pig to an action in in the state. And I'm belt and suspenders. So a lot of the work product is overkill. And so we we have a um, dedicated. It's boiling code backslash r e r t dot com website, which is the real estate roundtable. It's got 50 resources on there in terms of. Forms and documents and flowcharts and all kinds of things that were made during COVID to assist people. And to, you know, if they can't tune in, they can jump on there and uh, go take some information. And we we video every day. So if somebody can't come on at two o'clock live, they can go back and they can watch um, that episode for that day. And we're getting, you know, no less than probably 2000 hits on those videos a day. So it it really is something that I think people are, are happy to have as a resource so that they can, you know, real time when they can watch it and and gain a lesson of whatever it was for the day.
2: That's awesome. I have another question, which pertains more to, I guess it's, it's a hypothetical, which is something I constantly ask steven and every attorney i come across is because of this pandemic do you think property values are going to drop
1: oh um i think that if landlords do not get their rent and we and i and i think this is also so i'm gonna i'm gonna bifurcate that for a second i'm gonna talk about multifamily. i'm gonna talk about homeowners because i think they're two different conversations yeah. but in multifamily, i think we saw April at 25%, we saw May at 38% and we saw June at 40% rent shortfalls upstate. I'm waiting on July's numbers right now. They're not getting better and the stimulus obviously goes away this month. Um, I think that if we see that trend, and more people are unable to get their value for their properties, I think what's going to ultimately happen is we're going to get a fire sale. I see it in my clients already saying I'm selling. They're selling now while the property values are still holding. But the problem is, do we get people who continuously still want to buy into multifamily in New York? And I'm afraid, obviously, I still think we're going to have our out-of-state investors. But at some point, your local investors who grew up in these cities they can reinvest their money elsewhere. And I think that, you know, the overregulation in New York state combined with COVID and people just not getting the money for their value and still having to pay their property taxes and, you know, everything else that goes with the operation of a business. I, I think there's, we're getting to that fine line where I could see the landlords challenging the assessed value of those properties. And when they challenge it, lowering the tax base and You know, having a a larger impact then on homeowners in general, because someone's going to have to make up for those taxes that are uh, aggrieved by a landlord. And I'm not sure. I think that you know we're holding tight right now. The market's really hot still, but I I can foresee that we're going to have a a tough fall if we don't recover from this quickly. Okay. And would you recommend someone who's never? purchased a property during these
2: times because I hear a lot and, and and Stephen himself hears a lot of, of clients, especially here in Florida, considering mm-hmm. what happened back in 2005 who say, well, I want to buy a property that's in foreclosure mm-hmm. and you know, they want to go blindly and purchase this on their own a lot of times. And what advice would you give someone who says that to you? Mm-hmm. I usually say you should probably do this with an attorney. Because we've had cases where people say, oh, there was all these assessments I didn't know about. What advice would you give someone who is waiting for that to happen, for properties to go into foreclosure after COVID, because people may not be able to, you know, pay their deferments and they're waiting for
1: that moment? So it's tough because we tell clients all the time, those look great and they tend to have a ton of problems. And you know, you need to make sure your title's clean. You need to make sure that somebody who was in the property got all the notices that are required in a foreclosure to do or, or they could contest that. You need to make sure that person didn't have liens on that property, even if they're just judgment liens where they owed money to somebody because be, uh, then you're going to be dealing with, you know, release of those liens at least off the property for you. They're dangerous. I mean, they, they're, they're often not worth... The risk of the the monetary difference. We tell clients there's other properties to buy a lot of the time that are equally good value. And so you try and move them over to that. But if somebody truly wants to buy a foreclosure, I mean, we will just look at it and, and counsel them on the facts of where We're seeing and and ask for additional searches. We make our clients pay them. A lot of the times they're not going to be paid for by the bank so that they can get their own sound protection of, you know, what it is that they're buying and making sure it's actually a good deal. Fantastic. Excellent.
0: So the name of this podcast is Attorneys Are Human Too. So Mm -hmm. we've talked a lot about your practice Uh and we've talked a lot about, you know, the real estate and investment business in general. But now we want to see. We want to prove to our to our listeners, and and I and I've had the opportunity on a few occasions to get to know you personally, and you're an amazing person. So we're going to shift the discussion a little bit more on on who Jamie Michelle Kane is as a person. So Let's get my first to the, fun stuff.
2: Question,
0: the fun stuff that the millennials love, like Selena. Yeah. So so my my first question is, who was your celebrity crush as a child or as a teenager?
1: As a teenager. Uh, yeah. Freddie Prince Jr.
0: Love those Scream movies. And yeah,
1: Scream. And then there there was a movie called Summer Catch. He played a baseball player. That I think that did it. I was probably like 17, 18, and that, that did it.
0: <laughs> that gotcha. Okay. So the ne- the next question is I I know you're a really big sports fan. And my understanding from what you've told me is is football is your favorite sport. So who's your favorite football team and who is your favorite player of all time? And then your current favorite player.
1: Hmm. Okay. So I'm a Giant fan. I obviously grew up on, on uh, Long Island. So although I live in Buffalo and I fully support the Bills, Giants have, have remained my team. All-time football, I, I think I have two. Growing up, Jerry Rice was definitely somebody that I loved watching in terms of just a receiver. And then I think all-time, Barry Sanders probably would be who I would say in terms of just overall player. And my favorite player now is Saquon Barkley.
0: He led me to uh, my fantasy football championship last year. So, so we are going to have, an, and I know you like me, but you may not like me as much when I tell you my favorite team is the Cowboys. So, we're going to have to have a we're going to have to have a friendly little rate wager during the season.
1: Oh, okay. So funny, true story. When I was little, there was a Thanksgiving game where the Giants played Dallas and I got mad at my dad for some reason. And I became a a Cowboy fan for a very short moment. But you know, you can't go wrong with uh, Moose Johnson and Aikman and Emmett, And there were so many. Irvin, that game, I I had my dad really mad at me that he thought I was going (laughs) to be a Cowboy fan, but I respect it. Um, That's okay. It's Okay. That's one. That's a stadium on my list. So I like to go around and um, tour stadiums, go to games in all of um, I, the fifty states. Is like I do it for baseball, and we do it for football, and that's on my, my list of definitely. Oh, that's ones fun. Like. That's fun. Okay, I'm going to add
2: one of these questions. One of these fun questions is: During this pandemic, since we're all trapped at home for the most part, what TV shows have you been binging on?
1: Dudes. I never watched it and you know people were like, oh, you gotta watch this. And true, another true little tidbit of me, I wanted to go into fashion law. I'm a huge person, despite the sports and you know, tomboy attitude that I have, I am very big into fashion. So I, I wanted to go into fashion law and for some reason I missed this show when it first came out. But now I am full-fledged obsessed with the fashion and the law, the lawyering skills of it. So I've been binging through that.
2: Okay, awesome. Awesome. That doesn't surprise me. New Yorkers, fashion, I feel like they go hand in hand. For sure. <laughs>
0: yep. Excellent. So I have another, a few more questions and then I know your time is at a premium, so so we'll wrap it up. So the, my next question is, what skills have you learned during COVID? Like, for example, I, I've learned how to code. And I'm also, obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm stepped up my social media game and mm-hmm. learning to podcast and, you know, different ways to promote our firm outside of, you know, the traditional pounding the pavement and pounding the flash.
1: So one of the things I was doing before COVID, I'm a coalition leader of a coalition called Under One Roof. It was created last year as a result of the, the most sweeping piece of legislation New York had gotten in the real property law um, arena in the last 50 years. And so we we formed it. It's, it's made up of landlords and tenants. And so we formed it to kind of push back on some of the parts of the law that were hurting both landlords and tenants. That caused me to have have to basically fly around the state educating people. So I was on an airplane, I would say like once a month and traveling probably three days out of the week for the, the preceding months of, of COVID. So it COVID caused me to obviously slow down. And, and all of a sudden, it was like I, you know, got a lot of time back. And to your point, it was, what can we do during this? And so I used it as an opportunity to meet new people and to reach out to people and to really put yourself in the line of, you know, I don't know you, you don't know me, but hey, let's figure out like, what is the commonality that we might both have that could put us in a situation where we can benefit, whether it's a lesson we learn from each other or, you know, marketing opportunities that, you know, you're in Florida, hey, it may work in in New York and and vice versa, but also to really just use it as a moment in time to what do I want to do with my career? Because I feel like I've been having a lot of that struggle of, you know, oh my goodness, like, could this happen again? And, And is this really what I want to do? And how do you safeguard what you've Put into your practice to make sure that it, in in a second a pandemic can't ruin that. So you know, just trying to dive down into deeper skill sets and diversify practice areas and and learn new things and ways of educating clients when you can't be face to face. And so you know, learning to slow down and and depict things and use graphs and use you know technology to um, be able to make sure that your clients actually understanding what you're saying instead of just you know talking at somebody.
0: I learned how to make pizza. I was pretty proud of myself during COVID. So <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> I'm not as disciplined as you are, Jamie.
1: Do you deliver? You come on. You can put it in the I, mail. I can.
0: I can deliver. I can send it through FedEx. For my
1: you. my family's been asking me for like Junior's cheesecake to be delivered. So. Oh
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> I think everyone's picked up new skills
1: during this pandemic.
2: I've definitely. I've always been into technology, but I've definitely sharpened up a lot of my social media just because. I'm one of those millennials who doesn't love social media as much. Mm-hmm. So I've had to just kind of take over
1: and, and market all the other things that I do. It's a fine line. Oftentimes I wonder when, so how often to be relevant to... The, the people that you're reaching out to. And I, that's, I guess, my biggest struggle right now is, you know, putting up content that gets people's attention, that they want to buy into you. They want to look at what you're doing and, and maybe reach out to you versus, you know, is this annoying? So that, that's the only thing I'm, say, I'm seeing is, you know, trying to find that fine line between that, that engagement point.
2: Well, how are you coping with, because this happens to me a lot of times, clients call and because they know it's COVID and they know I'm working from home, they feel that they can call me at 9 p.m., 10 p.m., 11 p.m. and all weekend.
1: And they're just like, hey, I know you're home, but I have a question. Yeah. So I will tell you, I I have two little kids, four and and six. So she actually, she just turned five. So five and six. It's it's hard, right? So, you know, you're trying to be on a Zoom call. You're trying to do that, but you're trying to keep your kids quiet without schools open and daycare available. And you're right. July 4th weekend, I was on the phone with a client the entire weekend for, for a scenario. I think it's about boundaries you set. I'm bad at that. So I will email a client back at 2 a.m. because I'm up. I think what I had to realize in COVID was, wait a minute. If I'm answering it too, then they think that that's a free pass too. Always be on the hook, so you know it, it. It's hard. I don't necessarily mind it specifically, but what I tell clients is, you know, text me first because I gave all of them my cell phone number on the roundtable live. I don't know if that was such a great idea, but I Famous did. It.
0: Last words, Jamie. Uh, right? we, we once they do that with texting, it's they use it and abuse it. Celine mm-hmm. and I both know we we're always cautious to decide who we give. Our cell phone Because we, we also do a lot of bankruptcy work here in Florida. So, yeah. you know, those folks are at their last limb. So yeah.
2: they are the ones and that often abuse it. Bankruptcy is nerve-wracking.
1: So they're constantly, through the whole process, they're constantly on edge. Right. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't give it to a tenant who, you know, was on the other side of us. Um, but I have with my clients. And, you know, I, I just asked. you know, I do have kids. So just text me first. If I don't get right back to you, you know, generally speaking, if you don't hear from me in 24 hours, there's a problem. But I also have an amazing assistant who, you know, is also very much on the ball and com- communicating and letting people know, you know, hey, she's doing this, but let's get an appointment on the calendar so that we, we schedule it.
0: Okay, great. We're, Celine and I are going to ask one question, one more question each, and then we're going to go to our lightning round and then we'll finish okay. off. Okay. Okay. So so my last question to you, just because we're both Syracuse alum, mm-hmm. what is your favorite Syracuse sports moment?
1: Mm-hmm. I think we spoke about it briefly, but totally. The whole reason why I decided to go to, Sy- to Syracuse, my parents both went there, but I was looking at UConn. Um, Ooh. <laughs> yeah. I-, I was going to play there. but the the whole reason why I went to Syracuse was because of the basketball. Football wasn't good really when I was there. They were they were good right before I was there and then it, they were they were not. So, you know, it was about basketball and when Carmelo came in, I'm like, "All right, this is it. This is this is the opportunity." And then they won when I was there and I think the best moment was watching the last, you know, basically minute of that game um, where it was going back and forth and you really didn't know. And anyway, you know, Jerry McNamara was having the game of his life and, you know, it was Warwick had missed the, the very, I think it was the very last two free throws and the ball went back um to Kansas and I was like that's it they're going to hit a 3 and they're going to win and th- you know this is going to be like 96 all over again and when he blocked the um shot for the winning basket uh, worked it um I was like oh my god they they're, they're going to win they're going to win they're going and it was it was just I felt like I was winning it for my parents who had gone there also cuz they had never seen a championship so um, it was really cool and I think th- there was nothing that that would beat that
0: yeah, I, I grew up in Syracuse, and my grandfather had a store on campus, which is now Fagan's, which is a pretty popular oh, watering hole uh, on I, campus. I,
1: um, I had my name on the plaque from the drinking all the beers.
0: There, that's <laughs> I some. I okay. That. I, I actually was teary-eyed when they won that show because my grandfather passed away, and he was a huge Syracuse fan, and so I, I got to see something that he never got to see, and, wow. and it was it was a great moment, and I actually, I took my son I was actually the last, the, one of the last games before COVID, we saw Syracuse play basketball at the University of Miami, and he never went to uh, see a Syracuse basketball game in person. And he always gives me a hard time because the last couple of years, Syracuse basketball has not been very good. But at the end, he was he was jumping up and down because the game went to overtime, and he was going crazy during that game. So I think I passed a little bit of orange on to him.
1: There's nothing, Oh well, now it'll be even interesting with the new dome, but there is nothing like that noise in that dome that, that I've ever experienced. I mean, I've gone to a ton of games and it's just the energy has always been something that's totally electric and, and super fun. So um, very fond memories of watching games there.
0: Selena, last question before we go to the lightning round.
1: Well, this is just a random question.
2: Since we're doing a lot of Zoom meetings and and things like that of this nature using technology, My question is this, are you in your Zoom meetings dressed professionally from the waist up? And is it pajamas on the bottom? Is it a party on the bottom? Uh,
1: Well, (laughs) today I just have a dress. Um, But I will tell you, I will cop to professional dress and like running shorts and go for a run before or after, for sure. No I've never done the pajamas, I guess. But definitely.
2: (laughs) I keep my (laughs) pajama pants on the bottom and and, at the waist up it's button down shirt
1: yes you know it it's it was something during COVID that it was like all right you actually have to get up and get dressed someone's gonna look at your face and I I did order like clothes during COVID that were just shirts because a lot of mine is like suits and I was not gonna put that on and so yeah um for sure I've definitely done that
0: (laughs) I wore pajama pants during a motion calendar hearing I'm not gonna lie I had the the shirt and tie and the jacket and pajama pants underneath. But
2: now it's our little secret. What? During court call?
0: During a Zoom call. A motion camera.
2: Okay. okay, Pretty
0: pretty great. Okay, so we're going to wrap it up. And I I really appreciate it. But before we wrap it up, we're going to go to the lightning round. Okay, ready? It's just going to be, I'm going to give you two choices. And without any explanation, you just give us the answer. Okay? Okay. Burgers or tacos? Burgers. Basketball or football? Football. Diet Coke or Coke? Coke. What kind of girl? (laughs) Beach or mountains?
1: Mm, Mountains.
0: Okay. Hugs or kisses? Kisses. Okay. Okay, And the final one, drum roll, please. Mm. Hip hop or heavy metal? Hip hop. Okay. Excellent. So Jamie, we really appreciate you taking the time out, uh, to, to speak to our listeners. And I, and I think we've got a lot of great, you know, education as well as learning, you know, you're amazing person. You know, we have the utmost respect for you being the only female partner at your law firm, managing that with marketing and, and being the mother of two lovely children. So how do we find you online? How do our, how do our clients find you?
1: Um, my email address is jcain at boilingcode.com and my firm's website, which is boilingcode.com has all of my information on it as well. My office phone number for anybody who does own property or needs a consult in New York is area code 585-238-3514.
0: And how about social media? How do we find you on social media? Because so, um, we all want to be your connection and all want to be your friend. I want to
1: stalk you on, on Instagram. <laughs> um, so, so I am on Facebook. It's Jamie Kane. On Facebook and then on Twitter it's Jamie Michelle with two L's the number six and I am on LinkedIn also I I don't subscribe to an Instagram account only because I try and safeguard my kids since I've been on this coalition um Selena um, I appreciate you both having me on
0: okay thanks so much thank you
1: so much all right take care
0: bye thank you for listening to this episode of Attorneys Are Human 2 please subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast host. Please also leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider. Hope you enjoyed this episode and we look forward to seeing you next time.